But ha happy, happy Easter. Uh, I, I just, uh, I get so excited about Easter. I think about what uh, Heidi was singing about the hope uh, that we have in Easter. And what I want to do uh, this morning is talk a little bit about the assumptions that we might have coming into Easter. Now, uh, some of these basic assumptions is that Easter is a time to celebrate some, some things. We, we celebrate with uh, Easter egg hunts and, and, and baskets, and maybe you're going to lunch after this, you're going to have some ham. Uh, we, we get together with family and we celebrate that. Uh, maybe for you, 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 you come and you think about assumptions, well, church, of course, I'm going to come to church on Easter because I'm going to come and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And, and there's, there's something about Easter, there's something about Easter where it's an opportunity for us to really consider some really heavy things. It's an opportunity for us to consider questions of life and death. And, and here's the other assumption that I have. The assumption I have that on Easter, I have an opportunity more so than any other Sunday in the calendar to speak to more people who aren't a follower of Jesus. Well, let me explain that a little bit. I, I recognize this, that, that for some of you, coming here and being here is as natural as anything. Uh, that you come because you are celebrating a faith and a hope that you have in Jesus. Others of you, and this is, uh, we welcome you, and I honestly... Share this. I respect you immensely for this. You're coming not because you believe, not because you have a faith. You're coming because maybe you're intrigued or you're curious about Jesus, or maybe you're respectful of Jesus, or maybe you're respectful of another follower of Jesus. This is your kind of way to come and honor family and, and those you love. And I would say this, it's, it's easy just to kind of go along with it right it's easy for us to kind of kind of say yeah i'm a christian it's just kind of like this cultural thing that we do and i really respect people who just say like hey that's great i'm, I'm not going to be a jerk about it but i just disagree with you i really respect that and, and so what i want to do today is is kind of ask ourselves some of these questions that those people are voicing or some of the questions that you and i have voiced in terms of objections that we have to easter so that's what we're talking about today is the objections of objections of Easter because Easter is ridiculous Easter is absurd think about all the things that come with Easter first off you kind of have to accept some some things you can't pick and choose you have to accept what John tells us that Jesus is God come to earth that God come to earth and he lives a perfect life he performs miracles like healing people who are blind and people who are crippled are able to walk and he walks on water and he multiplies food. These, these things that are kind of beyond our comprehension or even credulity. And it's at this point where we say, well, this, okay, this is incredible. But he has these incredible teachings, but then he's killed, he's, he's tortured, and he's killed, and he dies on a cross, he's, he's executed there. But then he comes back to life. That doesn't make sense. That's not something that we see, but, but it goes beyond just that. It wasn't just a miraculous event. It was this preview. It was this promise that this new life, this resurrection is given, is, is ensured for all believers. That we can experience resurrection life now and forever. Now, growing up in churches and serving in churches all my life, the, the ways in which we would come at Easter would be this. People like myself would come up here and we would use story. We would use humor, maybe not very well sometimes, but we try. And we use logic. 
and maybe we use emotion to try to convince you of something. We would take this opportunity, and honestly, it has been effective. It has been a good thing, but we would take this opportunity. We would say, we are going to convince all of you skeptics. We're going to convince all of you people who have questions about this. We're going to convince you. We're going to argue you into belief in Jesus Christ. And today I want to do something different. Because I recognize this. Church kind of serves as an echo chamber, right? We just kind of say the things that we believe and suddenly we're saying things and repeating things and we're surrounding ourselves with people who just agree with us to the point where we don't even really question or understand the things at that root level. Uh, we, we don't really understand why it is. It becomes kind of a cultural thing. It's just something that we do. It just becomes something that we do and we don't really know why. Kind of like on opening day having hope in the Reds, right? Kind of like assuming that the Bengals won't experience incredible injury history and ridiculous moments where they don't re-sign a player they should. Or, or those moments where we just assume that there won't be traffic in the morning on the cut, through the cut in the hill. Like, like we just kind of assume these things, right? It becomes just something that we do. So what I want to do today is I want to tell the story of Easter. And I want to talk about the hope that I have in Easter. But I'm not trying to convince, I'm not trying to prove anything. What I want to do is give voice to the questions that I have had through my life about faith that I assume most, if not all, of you have. And I would assume that there are some people in this room who are watching online who are having these questions in the here and now and say, this Easter stuff, this Jesus stuff, I respect him and he's a teacher and all of these good things that he does, but coming back from the dead, come on. So I don't want to dismiss that. I don't want to assume, make this assumption that you're somehow not intelligent. I want to assume that you are intelligent, but I want to assume also that we come at this from different places with different backgrounds. And all of this kind of was started with a question from my six-year-old daughter. My daughter, who is the emotional one, like her dad, who wears her emotions on her sleeve, gets really, really angry, gets really, really emotional, all that stuff, that's me. I was the kid in Little League that would strike out and then throw things, right? Like, I was that kid. And my daughter is asking some big questions. In my, in my family, in my life last year, year and a half, there's been people who have passed. And so we use language to try to be really clear with our kids what happened, but also what it is that mom and dad believe. That mom and dad believe that these people that we love, that since they love Jesus, they are in heaven now. And we try to explain these things that are beyond our understanding, and we try to allow them to process and make decisions for themselves. But we are very honest about what we believe. And I remember we were having one of these conversations with my daughter a few months back. And of course, parents, you know, it's not like this thing where you can program and say, sit down and we're going to talk about the hard things of life. These things just happen. Like one minute you're playing with Legos, one minute you're doing dinner, one minute you're trying to put them to bed, and all of a sudden they ask, what happens when I die? And it was one of those moments where she was asking about those who had already passed, those that she loved. She was asking this question, am I going to get to see them again? Am I going to have any hope of this? And I told her what I believed about heaven. And I told her what I believed about eternal life. And I told her what I believe about what Jesus did and why it matters. And then I could see the wheels kind of turning. She asked a question that stopped me. She said, Dad, 
What about people who don't love Jesus? What about people who don't love Jesus? What about them? And I try to give my honest answer to that. That, that God loves all people, and that, that everyone has an opportunity to, to accept Jesus. I do believe that. I don't understand all or how or the mechanics of it, but that's something that I believe. But ultimately, it's a choice. Because, guys, my faith isn't going to save you. My faith isn't going to save my kids. My faith isn't going to save my wife. No one else's faith is going to do anything for you except point you towards you, towards you dealing with these questions. It ultimately comes down to a personal thing, a personal decision. So this is what I want to do this morning. Since the new year, we have been going through one of the accounts of Jesus' life, the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John has a very specific purpose in mind. And as we tell this Easter story, I want us to be thinking about the objections that we have had, that we have heard other people have. We want to open ourselves up to that because when we are interacting with other people, when we are trying to love those who don't follow Jesus, we are doing them a disservice if we dismiss their objections. We are not loving them. We are not serving them if we just assume that they are not smart. We are doing them a disservice if we don't listen and ask deeper questions. So we're going to ask these hard questions, but first let's hear this from John chapter 20, verse 31. This is why this book was written. This is what John says. John says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is writing this with intention, with a purpose. John is writing this so that the listeners, the hearers, the recipients of this will come to faith. And he doesn't do this by saying, I'm going to remove all doubt. He does this by saying, this is what I experienced. Because let's be honest, a rational person could look at all this and say, that's made up. A rational person could say, dead people don't come back to life. A rational person could say, well, this is just a group of followers who were really upset when their leader died or was killed. And they just kind of propagated the stories and fluffed up the details and did these things so that they would have power and control of people and that the church as an institution would thrive. A rational person could believe those things. I think a rational person could also say, no, I, I, I'm in on this. I want to follow this Jesus. But ultimately, I can't prove that Easter, the resurrection, happened. I can't prove what John claims, that somehow God comes to earth, lives a perfect life, teaches, performs miracles, does this incredible work, is executed, and then comes back to life. I can't prove that to you. And John can't either. So this is what I want to do. What are these objections? What are these things that many of us, many of us struggle with? My goal here is not to create certainty, it's not to remove doubt, it's to encourage faith. It's to encourage all of us to take a step, encourage all of us to say, okay, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for me? How can I take this step? Now, I think these objections are things that I hear a lot, but honestly, these are objections that I have. Because I have moments where I say to myself, well, this is all made up. This, is, this isn't real. Dead people don't come back to life. This, this just serves a purpose of this church being created. But I'll tell you this, in the midst of those doubts, I meet God, and I think you can too. Let's pick up this story in John chapter 19, 
John chapter 19 is right where we left off last week, starting in verse 38. Jesus has died. Jesus has been on the cross and he has died. Now, in the religious thinking of the day, this understanding was that when Sabbath hit, which was Friday at sundown, all work stopped, everything stops, right? So the followers of Jesus are in this place where Jesus is on the cross and he's dead and it's getting in the afternoon and they say, we got to get his body down and we got to get him buried because he can't stay up there. We can't have that indignity of Jesus staying up there and the scavenger birds and all this stuff happen. What a disgrace and a dishonor. We got to get him down. And so John records this in chapter 19, verses 38 and 39. It says this, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Now, First thing, look at the details. If you are making this story up, if you're John and you're writing this story, aren't you going to come up with a better story than this? Think about it this way. The people who are going to be the most honoring to the corpse, to the body of Jesus, of the rabbi, is a guy who is following Jesus in secret. And this guy named Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee, who this religious group that was the main opposition to Jesus, and was the guy that met with Jesus in secret in John chapter 3, where Jesus declared, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. And if you're making up a story, you want it to be believable, right? John tells us that Nicodemus carries... 75 pounds of burial spices to honor the body. Now, growing up, it's, it's kind of a part of, the, part of the world where I grew up in central Indiana. We had hard water, right? We had hard water. And so a lot of people had water softeners. They're not as common down here, but you get the idea. And there would be these 40-pound bags that we would pick up at the store at Kroger, and we'd take them down there, and we'd dump them into the water softener to treat our home water, right? And I remember hating that job as a little kid having to pick up these big yellow bags, these 40-pound bags, and carrying them downstairs and dumping them in. To carry 75 pounds of burial spices. Nicodemus is probably an older man, and he's doing this. This is a weird detail to include. And all this is happening on Friday afternoon, and Jesus gets buried before sundown in this borrowed tomb, and they put a big boulder in front of the opening of this cave, and John's narrative skips ahead to Sunday morning. And this is where the details become such where I say, if they were going to make this up, they would have done a much better job. John chapter 20, verses 1 and 2 says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone that had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Whenever you read in the Gospel of John about the disciple whom Jesus loved, that is the way in which John the author refers to himself, okay? That's how he refers to himself. It's very clear in the whole Gospel what's going on here. So you have Mary Magdalene, a woman who in that time was considered essentially property legally, that her testimony would not be valid in a court of law. She was second class at best in this world. She is the first witness. 
And she goes and speaks to Peter, the, probably the oldest and the leader of the 12 disciples, and John, who's probably the youngest of the disciples, and says, they have taken our Lord's body. And it's in this moment where if you're familiar with the story, if you're familiar with Easter story and the other Gospels, you might be saying to yourself, I don't remember it happening that way. But see, in the other Gospels, there's, there's a group of women that approach the tomb at the first morning, that first Easter morning, that Sunday morning. At other times, when they approach, they have a conversation there the first time with an angel and sometimes even with the resurrected Jesus. But John tells us that Mary is by herself, looks and sees that the tomb is empty, freaks out and goes, finds, goes to find help. The details don't line up. The details don't line up. I think it's reasonable to say, well, that's proof. It's all, it's all fabricated. Or it's proof that they missed the story and they fluffed up details. We'll understand this, that in that world, the first thing that they would do with something to record it wouldn't be to write it down. It was an illiterate culture by and large, right? It wouldn't be the first thing they would do would be to record this by writing it down. The first thing they would do would be to tell the story. It was an oral storytelling uh, 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 culture. And so these stories about Jesus are being passed around. And as the first generation of Jesus' followers, some of these first disciples, like John, like Peter, like Matthew, these guys, as they are starting to die, they and those around them realize we've got to record this stuff. So probably the first gospel that was written down, that was recorded and began to be circulated amongst the churches, was the gospel of Mark, which was probably written somewhere in the 50s or the 60s, some 20 to 30 years after the crucifixion and the resurrection. The gospel of John is written after the fall and sacking and destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 by the Romans, this cataclysmic bomb of an event. And he's writing this probably in the 70s or 80s, some 40 or even 50 years after the resurrection. And so you read these discrepancies, but you also notice how they all still fit together. The main message is the same. So you can read that and say, well, there it is. There's your proof. It's made up. I read that and I say, well, of course there's discrepancies. It was this oral tradition. They would tell the story differently. You, you know, you, maybe you've got somebody in your life. Maybe it's your dad. Maybe it's your uncle. Maybe it's somebody like that who's always got a joke, right? They're always there, they've got a joke, and they're going to tell you the joke, and, and, and you've heard some of these jokes multiple times, right? But they don't always tell it exactly the same. The story isn't always exactly the same. I read this and I see these discrepancies as, as kind of as adding, as adding credibility, as adding this proof. I mean, this, this is legitimate because people are writing from their experiences. Now, in the ancient world, in ancient documents, something that was written 20 to 50 years after the events is essentially contemporary, is essentially like immediate. Like that's, that's an incredible thing to have. But also notice some of these details in the story. Your first witness, if you want it to be credible, it's not going to be a woman. That's just a matter of the, the culture and the times. But now these two disciples hear this news, Peter and John, and know this. Post-resurrection, in the, the, the early church, Peter is a pretty divisive figure. Peter and Paul, famously in the book of Acts, have things that they go back and forth on. They argue about things. It is, it is reasonable to assume that Peter, the impetuous guy who just says what's in his head and, and doesn't always think things through at times, the guy who's just kind of like, let's, let's, let's fire and then we'll aim later, right? Of course he would have some issues. In, 
it's surmised, it's supposed that Peter and John have issues. They have some tension between one another, because of course they do. And look how John writes this in verses 3 through 8. It says, so Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. Now, have you ever noticed that when you're telling a story, you're usually the hero of the story? Have you ever noticed that? That when you're telling a story, you kind of put yourself in that hero spot. Have you ever noticed how you always give yourself the benefit of the doubt in your stories? Have you noticed that? That that it's just kind of this natural thing that we do. Even if we admit to doing something wrong, we talk about our, our pure motives, right? I think what John is doing here is kind of throwing Peter under the bus. Hey, you know, Peter was an old man now, or Peter's an old man now, and Peter was a really old man even then, and, and I was younger, and so we were running for the tomb, and hey, he got a little winded, he had to take a little break. I got there first, just so you know, just so we're clear on that. And then once we got there, I kind of, I did the respectful thing, I'm going to let him go on in and take a look, and he looked around and didn't quite get it, but I took one look and I knew immediately. If you're going to make this up, why is there this pettiness I, I read in this? Why, why is there this pettiness of this story? That I read. Maybe you don't see that, but I always think about this. I read this, I think to myself, man, that sounds like something a real person would write. That sounds like something that would be written coming out of experiences that were real. We read that later that night, Sunday night, the first Easter that evening, the disciples were in hiding. The disciples who at this point have had experiences with the risen, resurrected Jesus, they have heard the testimony of people that they believe and they trust, they're a part of their community. They have heard the stuff and their response isn't to go celebrate, it's to be in hiding in an upper room. It's not a good look, right? If you're writing a story and you're fabricating, why are you over and over again making themselves the cowards? We have in this night, this moment where, where Jesus appears to this huddled in hiding group of believers, these disciples. And they have this moment, they're amazed, and they can't believe it, and they, they worship him in this moment. It's incredible, it's miraculous. But then we read that not all the disciples were there, including this guy named Thomas. And so here we go, a week after this, the next Sunday night, they are again in hiding They've experienced the divine. And Thomas, who's there, he says, I will not believe unless I see with my own eyes, unless I touch with my own hands. And of course, Jesus shows up, and Thomas does just that. This is the doubting Thomas story. Now, the thing about Thomas is that he is listed among the apostles. He's listed among the disciples, but not very much else is written about him. If you were Thomas and you were reading this story, I would be ticked. I'd be ticked because the thing you included about me was that I didn't believe. The thing that you included about me was that I was somehow doubtful. See, I think this was written by real people. I'm not trying to convince you of something. I'm just trying to tell you how I arrive at this decision. How I arrive at a decision to trust this stuff. How I arrive at this decision to have faith. Because a rational person should 
asked some questions of an account saying that someone was dead and they came back to life. A rational person should ask some questions about an account of someone performing miracles and, and doing all these incredible things. A rational person should ask about what was the author's intent? What was their agenda? What was in it for them to get this message out there? A rational person should question absurd things. But I'm telling you, I think you're going to trust this account of Jesus. But I'm not trying to convince you of this. I'm trying to invite you in to this process. All I can do is explain my trust. All I can do is talk about my faith in the absurd. I trust what John and, or whoever it is that actually wrote this is saying. I trust that this person had a firsthand account or was around someone who did. I believe this because they feel so human. I don't think they were fabricated because there, is so many there are so many flaws in it. But most of all, I believe these things because this group of people, the people that we read about in the Gospels, the people who wrote the Gospels, the people of the early church, experienced persecution like we can't even imagine. They were in prison. They were beaten. They were killed bloodily and tragically and horrifically. They were sent to exile. They lost everything. And yet, we have no record of any of these eyewitnesses of Jesus recanting. We have no record of any eyewitness of Jesus saying it was all a sham, it was all made up. We have no record of anyone who was involved in this, anyone who saw this saying, I'm out on this. In fact, when you read the book of Acts, which comes right after the book of John, which is the account of the early church, over and over and over again, you'll see people who saw Jesus preaching about Jesus and telling the people, go talk to this person. Go talk to them because they were there. I trust this stuff. I believe in this stuff. But ultimately, I can't prove it. I kind of wish I could, not just for you, but for myself. I kind of wish I could prove it to myself at times. Because here's the thing about faith. We can arrive at a decision, we can say yes, we can accept it, but ultimately, it's not about proving something, it's about living it out. I can't prove this to you, all I can do is live it. And as I have lived in reaction to Easter... As I have lived in reaction to Easter, these are the things I can't shake. These are the things that make me take further steps of following Jesus. I can't shake my own experiences with God. I can't shake the fact that I feel like I have been comforted, guided, led, protected, provided for in ways that I can't explain. I, I, I can't chalk it up to just coincidences. I can't shake the experiences of other people that I love, that I trust, and their experiences of Jesus and what they have told me. I can't shake the fact that despite all of our best efforts, the church is still here. All the corruption, the crusades, the complicity or turning a blind eye to the Holocaust, the, the ways in which there has been abuse and scandal and cover-up, and the church is still here. A few weeks ago, I was going through my library, my books at home, and, and, I, and I found myself in this pattern where I would look at these books and they'd be written by pastors and leaders and other people that I respect and learn from and listen to their sermons and all that stuff, right? And I said, well, what am I going to do with that book? Because that guy had an affair and covered it up. Or what am I going to do with that book? Because that guy was like just an out-and-out -out bully and abused alcohol and 
led a church into ruin? Or what am I going to do with this? Because this guy, this guy knew about abuse in his church. He knew kids were being abused, and he did nothing. In fact, he hid it. Despite our best efforts of people like me, flawed and broken people who are trying to lead a divine thing, despite our best efforts, to the contrary, the church is still here. I can't shake that. I can't shake these things. And so when I arrive at this point where I say, I can trust this stuff. I believe this stuff. That's my decision. That's where I've come to. Let me tell you where I go from there. Where I go from there is not certainty. Where I go from there is not moralism of just do this, don't do that. Where I go from there is not just some sort of like making sure an image is upheld and look how good I am or any of that crap. Where I go from there is hope. Hope that death doesn't get the last word. We all know that feeling when we get the call that you better come quick and say goodbye. We know that feeling in that line at the funeral home. People are streaming by and they don't know what to say and you don't know what to say and you are just tired of crying and don't want to feel that anymore and don't want to feel sad anymore. You know that feeling, standing in a graveside. You know that feeling. When you can't say goodbye. You can't say goodbye. And there's this hole in your heart. Because Easter comes around. And they're not here. Mother's Day. Father's Day. Birthdays. Christmases. Thanksgiving. And they're not here. And my faith clearly, clearly doesn't take away that pain. But what my faith does, it says, it hurts now, but it's not forever. What my faith does, it says, it hurts now, it's not forever. Because there's this moment, there's this moment where Mary Magdalene goes back to the tomb. She was the one that first saw that the tomb was empty. She was the one that ran to Peter and John and said, come and see, they've stolen our Lord. She goes back, and she has a conversation with Jesus. In John's Gospel, she's the first one to talk to the resurrected Jesus, right? Again, if you're making this up, you don't pick a woman. You don't pick a woman who was probably a prostitute. You don't pick a woman who has no backing, no background, or no authority. And she's there, and she hears a voice, and she says, They've stolen my Lord. John writes that she was confused, that she thought that voice was the voice of a gardener. Pay attention to the details. Where else in the Bible do we have a garden? Well, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We have a garden, the Garden of Eden. And it wasn't some paradise. It wasn't like some constant vacation. It was a place where we connected with God, where things were perfect, things were right. 
I think John is saying she at first thought this Jesus, this resurrected Jesus was a gardener because Jesus is the gardener. Jesus is the one that's restoring things back to how they are supposed to be. You know why death hurts so much? Because we weren't made for this. We weren't designed to experience death. In the garden, there was no death. There was perfect connection with God. You know why it feels like this, the, the shame and the guilt that we have from our own regrets, our own sins, is because we weren't supposed to experience that. But who fixes it? The guy who's confused for a gardener. The resurrected rabbi of Jesus. The resurrected son of God. The resurrected man who is actually God come to earth. That's what my faith does. Because guess what? In the midst of all that, I still got doubts. I still got a lot of questions. I still have moments where I say, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with this. But right now, in Easter, I know this. Death doesn't get the last word, not because I did anything to deserve it. Not because I'm so good. Not because I'm a pastor. Not because I do this for a living. Death doesn't get the last word because God made it so. God fixed it. That's what Easter is. And this is my encouragement. This is my challenge to you. The band, you guys come on up here. You're going to have to help me uh, wrap things up here. But this is what I'm asking you guys to do. I'm asking you not to say... All my questions, all my doubts are meaningless. I'm not asking you to say just to kind of tamp those down. I'm not asking you to, to, to say yes to everything. You got questions about the Bible? I get it. You got questions about why things happen the way they do? I get it. You got questions about tragedy and pain and all loss and all the things, right? I get it. I'm challenging you. I'm asking you to consider this. What does it look like for you to take a step towards Jesus? Maybe you're not ready to say yes to all this stuff. What does it look like if you take a step? To ask these questions, can I trust this stuff? And if I do, what do I do about it? And if your first response is to create a list of activities to stop, I would encourage you to reconsider. Because the gospel doesn't say, avoid these things. The gospel says to embrace life. To embrace forgiveness. To embrace freedom. And just like my daughter asked that poignant question, what about people who don't love Jesus? It stopped me and I, I, it stuck with me for days, that question. Why she would ask it at six. And I remember reading something that Jesus said. He was preaching and kids were loud because kids are loud. There's a crowd of people. And the disciples thought they were going to serve the purpose. They were going to help Jesus by shushing the kids. And Jesus says some things to them that are incredibly harsh. He says to them, basically, I'm going to, I'm going to put your feet in concrete and throw you in, a, in the lake, in the sea. Because how dare you prevent a kid from experiencing this? So he picks up a kid. He puts him on his lap. I always have this picture, and maybe it's one of those cheesy Jesus paintings where somehow Jesus is like blonde and blue-haired, blue or blonde and blue-eyed and all that stuff, right? And it's like product and feathered and all that crap, right? But Jesus picks up this kid. And in my picture, Jesus, like, like he's, he's a worker. He's rough. But those calloused hands pick up this kid and put him there. And of course, Jesus would love kids. Of course, Jesus would bounce that kid on his knee. And of course, Jesus would look at them and say, 
you want to experience this, this life, this forgiveness, this kingdom, this way of life that I am creating, you must have the faith of a little child. Not certainty. Not all the answers. The faith of a little child that says yes. I invite you to say yes. Whether you've said it before, whether you said it a long time ago, whether you've never said it, a yes that says, Jesus, your ways are better. A yes that says, I want to be freed. I want to be forgiven. A yes that says, I want to experience life where death doesn't get the last word. At Movement Church, we do something that Christians for 2,000 years all around the world, and particularly on a day like today, are celebrating. We celebrate communion. And there in your row are these little prepackaged, repurposed coffee creamer things, right? And it's absurd, not just because it's absurd that we do communion this way, right? It's absurd because this memorial meal, this meal of remembrance, somehow connects us to that moment when Jesus did this for the first time. And he passed out bread and he passed out a cup. And he invited his followers to the table. He said, if you're saying yes to this, if you're saying yes to what I'm doing here, take and eat, take and drink. So here at Movement, we do this. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you get to define that. I don't care if you call Movement Church home. I don't care if you haven't been in church in years. I don't care because Jesus doesn't care. I don't care because Jesus says that's not what matters. He says, if you're saying yes to me, if you believe, you're invited to do this. And here we peel back this top layer. We take out this little wafer. We say it's not this piece of cardboard or whatever this is. This is somehow the body of Jesus. That his death, his torture on the cross wasn't a tragedy. It was a gift. The gift of love. If you've said yes to Jesus, take and eat. The same way Jesus broke the bread, he fills up a glass of wine, he passes it around. In that society, in that culture, the cup symbolized power, usually royal power and authority. And it was Jesus sharing this. He says, this cup is my blood that will be shed for you. And you can take part in this. If you've said yes to Jesus, take and drink. Because in communion, we declare something that we can't even say. We can't even articulate. We declare that we believe in this Jesus, that we believe in Easter. We're going to sing a song where the word hallelujah, which is the best way to describe the word hallelujah, what it means, is it's a way to encapsulate all the things that we cannot say, all the things that we, we, we praise God for, that we want, that we desire that we, that we glorify towards God, we, it encapsulates all of those things in this one word. Hallelujah. As the band leads, I'd invite you to stand and sing.